Well, good morning, beloved. It is uh, time to turn to God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, open them up to Jeremiah chapter 29. And as you turn there, let me uh, sort of tell you what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. We're going to resume our series that we began before the pandemic called Bless the Block. Uh, we were in that series as a way of thinking about how to organize ourselves for life and ministry in the neighborhood that God has assigned us to, in Southeast DC, uh, in particular in the Anacostia, Fairlawn uh, areas most immediately. And to do that, we were looking at instructions to God's people in Jeremiah 29 verses four to nine. We got about three sermons into that series and the pandemic hit and we took a break. Uh, I guess I was kind of thinking that the pandemic would be a couple months and we'd be back and would get back to the series. But in God's providence now, it's been several months and maybe a few months more before we're able to get back together in person. And I think over the last few weeks, uh, I've had this sense from the Lord that we shouldn't delay this series anymore, but we should come back to it. We should actually kind of refresh our memory by doing the series as, as a whole, brand new, um, and that we should be preparing ourselves now for the work of the ministry when we're able to resume sort of life out and about in the community. In other words, we don't want to wait until everything opens up again and then start trying to think about, well, how do we organize ourselves to, to serve the community more effectively? We want to begin that thinking work and that planning work even now. And so with that spirit, we're coming back to um, Jeremiah 20, 29, verses 4 to 9, and we're coming back to uh, our series called Bless the Block. And in this first sermon, what we want to do is think about who we are as God's people. There's something distinctive about our identity that's in this text in Jeremiah 29 that we want to embrace uh, and that we want to begin to live out more faithfully and more fully. So we want to think about who we are. Secondly, we want to think about what our perspective should be. Given that identity, how should we look at the world and how should we look at our situation? And, and having the right perspective will make all the difference in living out that identity and that mission most effectively. Uh, and then finally, we want to think about, you know, again, how do we embrace this practically? How do we put this identity and this perspective into practical practice and motion? Um, and so we're going to be thinking about Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read verses 4 and 9 to 9 for us, which is our, our theme text. But we're going to spend all of our time really thinking mainly about one word in verse 4. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. 
Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would take these ancient words and, and make them fresh to us today. That you would speak to us, instruct us, guide us, prompt us, build us up, use us for your great glory and for the blessing of our city. Lord, please give us more of yourself now that we might be delighted in who you are. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4 um, speaks of a particular group of people. Uh, that is the exiles. Notice there, uh, verse 4 is addressed to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. So we want to start by asking, you know, who are these people? Who are exiles? What does it mean to be an exile? Pastor Jonathan Brooks is a pastor in the south side of Chicago in the Inglewood neighborhood. He's written a great book called Church Forsaken uh, about practicing presence in neglected neighborhoods. And, and in that book, uh, he, he defines exile very simply uh, as being in the place, having to live in the place that you don't want to be in. Anytime we're forced to live somewhere we don't really want to be, we are having an exile experience. And that can happen either by force or that can happen by choice. But to be in exile is, is more than just being someplace you don't want to be. It also impacts us socially and psychologically and emotionally. So in his book, T. Scott Daniels, his book Embracing Exiles, Daniels writes this. People who live in exile feel displaced. They feel like resident aliens. They feel like a people who have to live counterculturally. This sense of out of placeness is actually the way disciples of Jesus ought to feel. So to be in exile, again, is not only to live in a place you'd rather not live, it is also to often feel a way you would rather not feel. It is to be dislocated. It is to feel like your whole life is countercultural, like, like you're different from everything else and everything else is different from you, that you are often misunderstanding other people and being misunderstood by other people. There's a kind of dislocation that happens, not just with place, but, but happens with, with the mind, with the heart. There's a dissonance, there's a, a, a discomfort. That's all part of the exile experience. Here, Daniel says that the way uh, that, that this sense of out of placeness is the way disciples of Jesus ought to feel. Why? Well, let me show you from the Bible. In Jeremiah's chapter de chap in Jeremiah's day, excuse me, the exiles were the entire nation of Israel. That's who he's writing to in verse 4. The entire nation from top to bottom. So look back in Jeremiah 29, verses 1 and 2. There Jeremiah writes, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile. So there are the elders and to the priests and the prophets. So that's the religious class and all the people, so the regular citizenry, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, had departed from Israel. 
You see there, that's, he's articulated sort of every le level of society, the king and the queen mother, the king's court and officials, the elders who rule in the city gates, uh, the prophets and the priests, the artisan class, all the way down to the common man. It's like Killmonger coming into Wakanda and taking over. He sends Queen Mother Ramona off into exile. Um, he sends Shuri uh, with her. Uh, he, he defeats, of course, King T'Challa and takes over. All the other elders in Wakanda have to start serving um, serving uh, Killmonger. Uh, Okoye uh, and, and those fierce women have to serve. Even M'Baku is in exile. I miss Black Panther. Can't wait for number two. But that's what's happening here. The whole society has been conquered and sent away into a foreign land. Now, here's what's really important. This is not just an isolated incident in Israel's history. It's not like they're just having a really bad year or they've come up into a king and made some really bad mistakes and they were conquered. This is actually a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. Think about how the thing of being forced to live where you would rather not live is, is just actually in the warp and the woof of the scripture. So you go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 where they are kicked out of the garden because of their sin. They are being forced into an exile. Then you come down to the end of Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abram to leave his father's home, his father's land, his father's people, to leave, interestingly enough, Babylon, Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says, I'm going to send you to a land that I will show you. So Abraham has to leave everything that's familiar to him and then take this trip, this exile, this pilgrimage to a place he's never even been or never even seen. And not just Abraham, but the, the patriarchs, all the patriarchs who talk about Isaac, um, Isaac and Jacob and so on. The rest of Genesis chapter 12 to 50 is the patriarchs wandering, trying to make their way to this promised land, which they have never inherited yet. Then you get Israel. They go down into Egypt at the end of Exodus, or Genesis, excuse me. And then they spend 300 years in slavery, in exile, in Egypt. Then they come out of slavery, but before they even get to the promised land, there's another 40 years of, of wandering in the desert. And then once they get into the promised land, they, they fail to remove all the other nations, and so they're surrounded by their enemies until eventually uh, Babylon and Assyria conquer them, which is what we're reading about here. And then they are taken again for another 70 years into exile. So you could say that the defining experience of God's Old Testament people is this experience of wandering, of pilgrimage, of exile, of living between a, a, a natural homeland and a promised land. It defines them. But it's not just the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, we see the very same things being taught um, by example and taught explicitly. So when the New Testament opens, Rome is occupying Israel. So you could say that Israel is in a kind of exile even while they're in their own homeland. Then the Lord Jesus himself enters a kind of exile. When he leaves heaven, takes upon himself human flesh, and lives on earth, uh, for the years of his earthly life. So much so, he could say in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
And how deep and profound a dislocating experience was it when the Son of God went to the cross and there died for us and was buried three days. That, that's the deepest part of his exile from his own home in glory with God the Father. But why did he do that? And why was he raised? Well, he was raised to save us, the gospel tells us, from a final and permanent and terrible exile in hell. So, so the gospel is always dealing with exile. And Jesus reclaims for himself a people. So much so that now those of us who believe in Jesus, we have entered into his life and we have become with him exiles. So that this whole world is no longer our home. And we are traveling like Abraham to a promised land, not on this earth, but a promised land in glory. We're going to a city whose builder and maker is God. We are exiles if we are Christians. And the early Christian church understood this very well. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes his letter to what, whom he calls the elect exiles spread out all over the earth. That's who we are if we're Christians. We are the elect exiles. And, and this is to be a prized part of our identity. So the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, which was read for us earlier, he's, he's celebrating there all these people of faith. This is the hall of fame of faith. But did you catch what he said in verses 13 to 16? Look there with me again. Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. He said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged, notice, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking, notice, a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see that? The great people of faith, they acknowledge that they are strangers and exiles on the earth, and they seek for themselves a homeland. Only, it's not the homeland that they've come from. It's not even a homeland on this planet. They seek for themselves a far better country, a heavenly one, which God has prepared for them. That's us, beloved. That's us. We are, by God's design, exiles on this planet. And we are, by God's design, intended to seek a home in the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city. That's who we are spiritually. But now, I, I want us to be clear, there's also another aspect, a natural aspect, if you will, to this idea of being exiled. Today, there are many people groups who are experiencing dislocation, who are experiencing uh, forced exile. For example, there are 900,000 Syrian refugees right now who have had to flee their homeland. Over half of the Syrian refugees are children. Not only that, but at the U.S. border are, are thousands of people from South America. Many of them are fleeing violence and crime and corruption in their homelands. They are seeking uh, refuge. They are exiles. And some of you who are members of this church or, or watching right now, some of you uh, may be immigrants and refugees yourself. 
And you have come to a land that is not your um, uh, land of origin. It's not your birth home, your homeland. And you're feeling the dislocation. You're feeling what it is to be uh, exiles in another land. And truthfully, beloved, every African American, well, we live in the land of our exile. This is not the natural home of our forebears, of our ancestors who were forcibly brought here. We're born here and, and our forebears didn't come willingly. And, and we have, as a people, had to claw and scrape uh, to turn this place of exile into a home, to earn citizenship, to earn freedom, uh, and so on. I mean, the truth of the matter is, uh, in terms of the African-American experience, you, you can't quite explain this experience unless you have some concept of what it means to be an exile. So from ancient Israel to the Christian church, to various kinds of, of people groups today, I just named just a few of them, exile is a real experience and a real identity. Why are we, why are we hammering at this um, as it relates to ARC? Well, I believe the Lord wants the members of ARC to acknowledge this reality in the same way that ancient Israel did and the same way that the early church did, that we are an exile people. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Acknowledging our existence as exiles will involve deep identity work for all of us. It won't be easy. It won't be easy to sort of dig beneath the ways we normally think of ourselves and to sort of develop a more biblical identity as exiles and pilgrims and strangers in the earth. And to have that identity then work itself out in our lives. And one more thing. Many of us will have multiple layers of exile experience. So if we are Christians, we're all spiritual exiles. We just saw that running through the Bible, right? That's one experience. But if we're immigrants or refugees, that's a second experience. Uh, that's another experience of exile. Or... If we are white brothers and sisters and we are living now in a neighborhood, which is 92% African-American, that's a different cross-cultural uh, exile, stranger, resident alien experience. If we're African-Americans in this country, that's a 400-year that's a history, culture, and identity as strangers and pilgrims and exiles in this land. These experiences overlap one another and have to be worked out in biblical ways. So we have to understand the concept of exile and let it shape and define us individually and collectively. And the fact that we are exiles in Christ, hear me now, does not mean that our other exile experiences aren't real and are not important. I'm still an African American. You may still be an immigrant from um, Europe or from the Caribbean or from Africa. You may be a white brother or sister in the Lord living cross-culturally in the neighborhood, as we've said. All of that matters because all of that is part of God's work in our lives. None of it is accidental. And God means to get for himself glory through it all. Now, at the same time, the fact that we have other exile experiences does not mean we can set aside our exile in Christ. 
So we have to understand what it means to be an African-American through Christ. We have to understand what it means to be an immigrant or a refugee through Christ. We have to understand what it means to be a white brother or sister through Christ. We have to navigate these experiences like Christians. We have to be all that God has made us to be and steward all the experiences God has entrusted to us so that we are fully integral, integrated, whole people living in the, in the goodness and the newness that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. That, beloved, is a lot of identity formation work to do. And, and I'm of the impression that the American church hasn't even begun to recognize that it needs to do that work, much less take steps toward it. And here's the thing, if we're not doing this kind of identity formation work, I don't know what kind of Christianity we're practicing. It's not deep biblical Christianity. In order for us to have a, a deep biblical sense of who we are and to walk out this faith the way God has designed it, well, we have to embrace being exiles and do this identity work. Otherwise, we run the risk of sliding off into worldliness and settling for this life when eternal life is on offer to us. So, beloved, if you're a Christian, you and I, we're exiles with multiple exile experience experiences. And so the, the question becomes, are we willing to do the work to understand it all, to understand each other, and to walk together as an exile community? Are we willing to embrace this status and this identity so that we can live out God's call on our lives? And here's how I want us to start this process at ARC. Whenever the Lord allows us to resume in in-person meetings, we're going to begin Be the Bridge groups uh, across the church. Be the Bridge is a, a Bible study uh, curriculum and process um, that Latasha Morrison has developed uh, and a whole ministry around it and resources around it uh, aimed at helping us to understand ourselves um, ethnically and other ways um, and helping us to understand one another so that we can work on and, and work toward reconciliation with each other. So we live out the reconciliation of the gospel in deep and practical and profound ways. Now, that's just the beginning point. That's just setting the table for us to understand some basic concepts and understand how to engage each other um, in, in gospel reconciliation. But then we've got to move on to explore more deeply some of the themes and lessons from our experiences and, and history um, so that we, we learn to be more effectively the, the sort of sent and called out people of God that we are called to be. So the pastors want to strongly encourage every member to participate in these groups. We want to insist upon it uh, so that we learn to grow together uh, in this way. So go ahead and be thinking about your calendars, creating some space um, to, to be plugged into various groups that we're going to hopefully get organized and um, be ready to do the heart work and the identity work that, that God calls us to. So... We are people who, by God's design, are sent to live where we would not choose to live. So what should our perspective be, though, on that reality? How should we view life as exiles? That's the second question 
I want us to think about. Because it would be easy for us to uh, think about, okay, Israel is conquered. They're in Babylon. They've been drug off um, by this pagan king. They're living in this pagan culture. Um, they've lost their, their lands and their homes and any power that they had. Uh, it would be easy for us to conclude that that's, that's a raggedy life. That's a jacked up life. And to imagine that they're walking around barefooted with raggedy clothes, you know, emaciated, starving, uh, without any resources, right? When we hear the word exile, we don't tend to think stability and influence. We tend to think of the opposite. But I want us to peep something in the Bible here. I want us to observe something um, pretty spectacular here. When God wants to bless his people, when God plans to make his people influential, he often sends them to live where they don't wish to live. In other words, exile is the place of blessing, not torture. So, Abram left his home in Ur of the Chaldees, in the Genesis chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12, left his father, left his father's homeland, left his culture. God sent him to uh, a land that he was going to show Abraham. Abraham didn't even know where he's going. He's wandering through the Middle Eastern wilderness. And, and what happens along the way? Well, you read that story, Genesis chapter 12, down to chapter 20, 21 or so, and all along the way, Abraham gets richer and richer and richer. His flock grows and grows and grows. Uh, pretty soon he has a, a small personal army of his own and his influence on the other peoples grow. The more Abraham traveled and wandered in exile, the wealthier and the more powerful God made him. Not just Abram. When God sent Joseph into Egypt, wasn't it to bless Egypt and to save many nations, according to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? When Jacob and his family went down into uh, um, uh, Egypt, they were only 70 people. Now, eventually, they live there and they grow to be so big that the Egyptian government gets afraid of them and enslaves them. And so they live there for 300 years as slaves. But in the Exodus, God brings his people out of Egypt. They're not 70 anymore. They're a whole nation. And guess what God does is he brings his people out of the Exodus, out of the Exodus. He plunders Egypt so that Israel leaves with the wealth of the mightiest nation on earth. And now, in Jeremiah's time, same thing is true. God is going to use these 70 years of exile in Babylon to bless both his people, Israel, and, notice, to bless the Babylonians through their presence. So when we think of exile, we have to stop thinking of defeat and punishment. Those things may be true. You may have suffered some defeat, may be suffering some chastisement from the Lord. That's true of Israel in this text. But defeat and punishment and its significance are not the whole story. They're not God's ultimate aim. Blessing is. So I love the way Walter Brueggemann uh, puts it when he writes this. Exile is the way to new life in new land. Embrace of curse is the root of blessing. Embrace of death is the way to life. Jeremiah announces the central scandal of the Bible. That radical loss and discontinuity do happen and yet are the source of real newness. 
the exiles are the real heirs, and conversely, those that cling to the land are the ultimate exile. You see what Brueggemann's saying here. What's the scandal of the Bible? When God takes what looks like a curse, looks like death, looks like profound loss, and uses it as the way to bless, to give new life, and to give abundance. So we can't walk by sight, can we, beloved? Gotta walk by faith if we're exiles. We have to view God sending us into exile as, as God's plan for, for our best, for our blessing, and not just us, but his plan for the blessing of all those around his people. And for us to see it that way, I want to suggest that the perspective we ought to have is the perspective of builders. The perspective of builders. And that's really what we see in verses 5 to 9. And Christy and I like to watch HGTV, and uh, she's had me watching this show called Hometown. It's a couple. He's kind of a, a, a handyman, builder-type guy. She's a designer. They help people in their hometown, little town in Mississippi, find these old houses, and they basically redevelop, rebuild those houses. Uh, we also watching a show uh, called Flipper Flop, Fort Worth. So. Uh, brother and his wife, they are former military, now they're flipping houses. And, and what's interesting about both of those shows and a lot of those shows like that is that the, the designers and the builders, they take people to these homes and, and all people can see is the destruction. They can see the overrun yard, the sagging roof, um, mold in the kitchen, problems in the bathroom, and they have a hard time, most of us, imagining what the house could be. But the builder sees beyond all the brokenness and all the disrepair, and he sees what the house can be. And she sees what the house can be. And because they see it, they transform it. And this is the perspective we need to have as exiles. We are being sent into a place we don't want to live in, being sent into a place that will make us uncomfortable on a hundred different levels in a hundred different ways. And we are being called in, in Jeremiah 29, 4-9, we're being called to look at that exile experience like builders. Notice now, four things in this text that they are to build. Number one, verse five, they are to build houses, build houses and live in them. Number two, they are to build gardens, plant gardens and eat their produce. So that's shelter and food. Number six, take, or verse six, excuse me, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not, and, and, and do not decrease. They are to build families. You see, there are three generations of families marrying, having children, marrying, having children. And then verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. They build cities. So they are to, to see with the kind of faith that allows them to build houses, allows them to build farms or gardens, allows them to build families, and allows them to even build and contribute to the peace and welfare of the city. This is what resistance looks like when you're in exile. Doesn't look like armed rebellion and overthrow. It actually looks like um, 
building and constructing a whole new life that in its blessing overflows the borders of your life and your community to, to bless the, the rest of the community itself. So it will flow over the walls of the church into the community. That's what it is to live as an exile. That's the perspective we have to have as exiles, that we are here to build. And Lord willing, uh, we want to organize our work as a church uh, into these areas as a kind of blueprint for our ministry in Southeast. My hope is that we'll have working groups dedicated to um, housing security, dedicated to food security, dedicated to family formation and stability, uh, and dedicated to the, the peace and the welfare of uh, our immediate part of the city and the city as a whole. And in these working groups, we want to flesh out what will be the shape and the, the activities of our ministry aimed at these kinds of objectives. And we want to get every person in the church uh, involved in at least one of these working groups. And in these working groups, we want to apply our five M's and, and we want to seek God's blessing uh, on our life as exiles in Southeast that we might see this kind of development grow. We want to be builders. That's the perspective that we are meant to have. Now, let me say a couple things about the mentality here. In order for the people in Jeremiah's day to live out this text, then there are a couple kinds of mentalities they can't have. So, number one, they can't have a scarcity mentality, right? So they can't be thinking to themselves, we ain't got this, we ain't got that, we ain't got these, you know, a whole list of ain't gots. Because meditating on the ain't gots, meditating on the notion of scarcity, uh, that won't lead you to be productive. In fact, we have to sort of say, no, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God has promised to uh, sort of provide our needs according to the riches of his grace. We, we actually have all things between us, and what we don't have, God will give us. And so we've got to abandon a scarcity mentality and, and have a sense of the riches that we have as God's people. And here's the other thing that we can't allow ourselves to slip into. We cannot slip into a victim mentality. Now, it may be the case that some of us have been victims of various things. I mean here not the denial of that truth. I mean here the denial of the mentality that then goes on to say, all I can ever be is a victim, and I can't do anything because I'm a victim. Well, that ain't the legacy of the church, the Christian church. That ain't the legacy of a black church. That ain't the legacy of the black community. And that ain't how we think and been thinking for 400 years. And so um, despite what some other folks might think, this is not what we're about. But we're about actually walking by faith and being builders and, and actually recovering the richness of our heritage. We built this country. We have built a church. We have built schools and hospitals and institutions. We're builders, and, and we've got to recover that sense of things, not, not, not a victim mentality. It can't be sort of sliding over into that. We've got to be people of faith who do the work. And so that's going to be our perspective with God's help. Lasting on perspective. Of course, if we're walking by faith, uh, that means we can't be uh, complainers and doubters. And so we've got to check our hearts for unbelief. We're going to face some pretty significant needs. Um, we're going to face some pretty significant um, absence of opportunity. Uh, the holes and the gaps are going to be pretty big from time to time. Uh, and the things that we run into are, are going to be pretty significant. 
was talking this past week briefly uh, with a sister who, a couple of sisters who live in the neighborhood and a uh, young man, 20 years old, had just gotten killed outside their home. That She didn't see the shooting, but, but she saw the aftermath. She saw, saw things, you know, the body on the ground and things of that sort. So that's, that's disconcerting. That, that's real too in our neighborhood. And so we'll be brought face to face with some real challenges, but we can't sort of turn in on ourselves in complaining and murmuring and dissatisfaction and, and things of that sort. We've got to turn out on the world in faith. That's got to be our perspective as exiles. Okay, enough of that. Last thing. Well, how do we how do we practically put this in motion? How do we personally begin to sort of embrace being exiles. I want to give you two suggestions here. Uh, they are also mind shifts, um, but they are also actions to take. Number one, we want to rethink our physical locations. We want to rethink our physical locations. See, by definition, an exile is someone who does not get to choose where they live. God, verse 4, sent them into exile. So we can only embrace living as exiles fully when we allow God to determine where we live. Now that means some of us will need to be relocators. Some of us will need to be returners. Some of us will need to be remainers. It's been interesting to see how some of you have been embracing this over the last uh, few months even. So relocators are people who once were outside the community who moved into the community to live cross-culturally for the gospel. That's how they embrace their exile experience. I think of Precious Rideout. Moved into the neighborhood when we first launched the church. Has been living here these last five years. And just a couple months ago, bought her first home east of the river. Praise God. And I think of Christian and Angela Whisker. A young couple has just bought a home in the neighborhood as well. They're living cross-culturally in the neighborhood and here with a sense of purpose for the gospel. And Ryan and Cassandra McAnally also members who have just purchased a home uh, east of the river and are living intentionally and cross-culturally for the gospel uh, as an ethnic minority in a predominantly black neighborhood. Praise God. So some of us are going to have to be relocators. And then some of us are going to have to be returners. Returners are, are people who are originally from the community who left but have come back or are coming back. And again, I've just been encouraged to think about what the Lord has been doing over these last several months. Some of the returners among us. I think of April and Eugene Dingle. Grew up in Southeast. Um, joined the military and went all over the world. And now God has returned them to the neighborhood. And they are witnessing and living with us uh, on mission. I think of Rick and Sean Owens. Rick grew up east of the river. Now he's back to serve the Lord. Living in Southeast. And he and Sean planting their lives here a bit. I think of Nicole Ashby, who also grew up in, in Southeast. She moved out to Virginia for a season, but several months ago, the Lord turned her heart to come back to the neighborhood. She could have continued in a place that the world considers comfortable, but she's returned as an exile, believing that actually this is the place of God's blessing for her. So some who grew up in Southeast will Lord willing, come back to Southeast for, for the blessing of Southeast and the advance of the gospel. And then there are remainers. The remainers are people who decide never to leave. I think of saints like Tasha Barnes and Brittany Conyers who grew up in Southeast and still call it home. 
I think of LaRonda Graham. She's away for a little while in seminary, but she wants to be back here um, where she has grown up and lived all her life to serve this community when her studies are done. Think of Christella Tolliver and her family who remain here and have been a, a foundational part of the church from day one. So every one of us is going to be in one of these three situations. We all have an exile's calling on our lives as part of our identity. And we've got to figure out which of these describe us, which of these we are going to live into. And we've got to think about wherever we are presently, do we live there like exiles? Or is that the land of our comfort? Is that the land of our ease? And some things God only does in our life by uprooting us and moving us away from comfort to places where we have to depend upon Him and look to Him. And we want to have that perspective on that. Here's a second mind shift. Here's a second application. We've got to redefine success. We've got to redefine success. We cannot and we will not embrace an exile identity and live fully as pilgrims and sojourners if we think success is defined by getting out, by escaping the neighborhood. Jonathan Brooks again writes this in his book. He says, just about anybody who has been deemed successful from neighborhoods like the South Side of Chicago has moved away. It is understood that to be successful means to move away. If you found yourself living in your neighborhood or in a similar economic state as your childhood, even if it was lower middle class, you had failed. Does that sound familiar? If we allow ourselves to think that success is getting out, then what are we saying about the people and the place that remain? And if we buy into success as getting out, then in the neighborhood, we're going to have a real significant resource and talent drain, aren't we? The, the resources and the, the gifted persons that should be an investment in the neighborhood and that should create more resilience in the neighborhood will be, will be sort of fleeing out to other places, further impoverishing the neighborhood. That's not a success. That's not a win. That's, that's failure. So, so we need to understand success as going back and giving back, as, as living there. Not, not getting out and giving back, but going back and giving back. So finish college and come back. Join the military and come back. Learn a trade and come back. Come back and use all that God gives you and, and all that God makes you to be for the blessing of the church and the spread of the gospel and the blessing of the community. It's the only way that, that the yeast of the gospel will get into the dough of tough communities and work its way through the whole batch of dough. Is if we are living on the block, shoulder to shoulder with neighbors, loving and being loved, seeing their welfare as tied up together with our welfare and just living as God's people day in and day out. We cannot bless a block we don't live on. Success, real success, is returning, is remaining, and relocating for Jesus' sake and the gospel. And I want you to understand something this morning. If you're listening and you're not a Christian, 
you have often heard it said, I'm sure if you've heard about Jesus and the gospel, that he died for your sins. He died so you would be forgiven of your sins and so that you could be reconciled to God. You have a relationship with God. That's all true. That's beautifully, spectacularly, stunningly true. But I want you to understand something. That if you choose to believe in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, as your God, and to follow him, he's going to send you into exile. He's going to send you to some place you may not rather be. I want you to understand the second thing we've been saying. That's going to be the place of your blessing. If, if you sort of hold back from Jesus because you want to be comfortable, well, you won't have Jesus. If, if you want to hold back from Jesus because you only want to be among the familiar, you really need to hear Jesus when he says in the gospel that he has come to put a wedge between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, that he has come to sort of really divide the planet between those who would follow him wherever he goes and those who want to hang on to all the sort of familiar comforts of this world. In other words, you need to understand if you're not yet a Christian, that your comfort is killing you. It's choking the spiritual life out of you. It's, it's coming between you and the God who would save you from hell, that permanent exile, and save you from judgment. So here's, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to right now lay down comfort, lay down the idols, the false god of security, lay down the, the sense that you get to decide where you go, where you live, what you do, and really say, here, Lord, is my whole life. I believe in you. I trust you. I trust you with my life. Wherever you say go, I will go. Whatever you say do, I will do. Send me on the exile because, listen, this world ain't my home. I'm coming to heaven, to that heavenly city where you are. I want to ask you, I want to invite you, encourage you to enter the life of faith, which is to enter life as an exile. Not as an owner of your life, but as one who has given it to Christ. If you put your faith in Christ, who was crucified for your sins and raised from the grave, and you enter the life of faith, you will be saved. But God will also send you, and it will be for your blessing and the blessing of others. But we should land the plane here. We ask a couple questions of Christians. Have you asked God where? He wants to send you where he wants to send you. What we've been seeing here in Jeremiah 29, 4 and across the Bible is that we are a sent people if we are Christians. If we are God's people, he, he exports us. He ships us around in order to advance his kingdom. So where ought to always be a question on our agenda with God? And I'm wondering if you have asked God where he wants to send you. If we're exiles, that's his decision, not ours. And if you haven't asked him that, I want to ask you, will you ask God? Will you ask God where? Will you ask him, where can I go that I might be most uncomfortable, but would make the greatest difference? Make the greatest difference in my relationship with you, Lord, and the greatest difference in my relationship with neighbors and communities. Would you ask him that? Now, let me ask yourself this, this question. Is it possible, is it possible that God's greatest work in your life, my life, is being hindered by our desire to be comfortable 
where we would rather be. It's not possible. And if it's possible, would you ask God to reveal whether or not it's actually the case in your life? Are we missing God's work because we refuse to be in God's place of exile? God is going to send us. He's going to make it uncomfortable. But that's going to be the place of our blessing. And that's where we will be closest to God. So let's start the identity work of embracing life as exiles. Let's dig in. Let's do the work. Let's get ready to see what God will do. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we thank you that you have called us to yourself and that you have sent us to the nations. So whether you send us, Lord, to faraway lands where Jesus is not known, where the church is not present, to live and work as those, those exiles, sometimes called missionaries, or whether you send us several blocks across the city into a neighborhood with a different demographic than our own, uh, into a neighborhood, Lord, that we would rather not live, into a neighborhood where friends and families tell us we're crazy to go, would you, if, it's, if that's where you want us to go, would you burden our hearts to do that, to ask you the where, to hear your answer, and to go? And would you give us faith to believe that that is the place of our greatest blessing? That we are meant to join you there rather than try and convince you to join us where we are. Help us to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also and serve you, we pray, for your glory, for the joy of your church, for the blessing of our neighborhood. In Jesus' name, amen.